You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. I'm Nicolette Buffoni, Learning and Community Engagement Coordinator at the Office of Library and Information Services. Anyone who has lived in Rhode Island for any time at all has probably heard of Save the Bay. Founded as a grassroots organization in 1970, Save the Bay is an independent, member-supported nonprofit organization whose mission is to protect and improve Narragansett Bay and to achieve the vision of a fully swimmable, fishable, healthy bay through advocacy, education, and habitat restoration and adaptation. To celebrate its 50th anniversary, Save the Bay has published a book, Saving Narragansett Bay, how people, passion, and perseverance have made all the difference. Filled with beautiful photographs, this coffee table book shares the stories of the fight to protect and improve Rhode Island's greatest natural resource over the past five decades. I sat down with Jonathan Stone, Executive Director at Save the Bay, and local author Todd McLeish to learn more about Save the Bay and the new book. So my name is Jonathan Stone. I'm executive director of Save the Bay. And for those of your members of your audience who are not familiar with Save the Bay, we are the oldest, largest environmental organization in the state and one of the older and larger environmental organizations in New England. We were founded in 1970. So this year we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. And Save the Bay is all about protecting and improving Narragansett Bay, its watershed, and adjacent coastal waters. So we're a place-based organization. We're focused on advocacy around pollution issues, around uh, protecting natural places and natural habitats like salt marshes and dune dune systems. And we have a very extensive environmental education program that is designed to inform and inspire people of all ages in the ecology of Narragansett Bay and the importance of protecting it. Uh, We know that um, our grassroots support is crucial to our ability to be effective as as an advocacy organization. So that's kind of the big picture of who we are and what we do. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And Todd, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and sharing what you do. Thanks, Nicolette. I'm Todd McLeish, and I'm a full-time freelance writer uh, working on uh, magazine stories, newspaper stories, all sorts of other places to get writing uh, my stories written for um, for environmental topics. I've written four or five books about natural history topics, rare wildlife especially, uh, and uh, I continue today to crank out as many stories as I can about the the natural history and the environment and, and the issues that, that they all face uh, here in Rhode Island and, and throughout Southern New England. Thank you, Todd. We will start with uh, Jonathan. Why did Save the Bay decide to produce a history book? Well, the occasion of our 50th anniversary got us thinking a few years back about both celebrating the success that uh, so many people share have shared in protecting and cleaning up Narragansett Bay, And, you know, and also issuing a call to action to people to understand what's at stake now in the present day and what the threats are today to inspire people to continue vigilance and continue attention to protecting this incredibly beautiful place that that so many people value. So that that was sort of the the notion that we developed with Todd to look at um, the history of the cleanup of the Bay, which involves, of course, 
going back in time and documenting and illustrating what the problems were with the bay way back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, which is where Todd's story picks up, and then begin to describe how the sort of the, the movement, the fight to protect the bay evolved over time. And I think Todd will get to that, but it's, it's been an evolution for sure. So that was the basic idea was to both kind of celebrate success uh, and inspire people to, to pay attention and to keep, keep fighting for protecting this place. And then, so what was the original vision for the book? You know, we, we understand from our thousands of members and people who are not members, but who support what we do, that so many people have a emotional connection to Narragansett Bay, particularly folks who've grown up here, who've enjoyed it as a child, grown up uh, as an adult here, or returned to Narragansett Bay, or even new to the bay. The bay and the ocean and the coast are really, they really touch people emotionally. And we wanted to kind of rekindle that emotion. You know, that's why we put a lot of effort into art and photography in the book to help people, take people back in time to sort of trigger their memories about their own experiences going up here, uh, but also to include imagery and photographs and maps that speak to the beauty of the Bay today and some of the issues that we're confronting today. So it was, I think, you know, a big part of the challenge for Katie and for Todd, who put so much work into this, um, was to kind of create something that resonated emotionally with readers that people felt um, really drawn to and inspired by, doing it in an engaging way that I I hope uh, people really gravitate to. I certainly do. I I love it. It's on my uh, kitchen table, and I refer to it all the time. I just love both the present-day beauty of the book, the story of individuals who made a huge difference, people who actually took time out of their busy lives and committed themselves to protecting this resource, um, that also is really inspiring. So that was the idea, was to kind of connect with people in a really visceral way, a positive, emotional way. Thanks, Jonathan. I think you guys achieved that. The book is beautiful. So we're going to switch to Todd for a few questions, and then we'll come back to you, Jonathan. The first question is just, why were you interested in working on this project? And what was, you know, what drew you to it? What excited you or challenged you about this project? Well, you know, this is a, a project that in part fell into my lap at the right moment. I had finished a, a book about sea otters, which I had been working on for four years uh, and was looking for a new project. Uh, I was looking for a local project that wasn't going to involve a whole bunch of travel. Uh, and this project just sort of came along at the right moment. And at the same time, I feel like I have this this affinity for Save the Bay uh, through the years. My father's uh, architectural office when I was a kid was right next to, in the same office building, as Save the Bay's very first office in East Greenwich in 1970. And so dad would come home and tell stories at the dinner table about, you know, what he had, the stories he had heard from the Save the Bay folks and how this um, infant organization was getting started. And so I, I felt, feel like I have this affinity for this organization. I feel like I followed them for, for my life and for its entire life. Uh, and so I, I just felt like this was, a, this was the right project for me at the right moment with a subject matter and an organization that I, that I was passionate about. Thank you, Todd. So how did you approach starting this project, Saving Narragansett Bay? 
Yes, Saving Narragansett at Bay was a, was a project that was a bit different for me. Uh, I write primarily books about uh, natural history, about wildlife and their current situation. So I go out and I have these adventures with biologists and I help them with their research and I tell the story about the current state of this animal and, you know, and, and the challenges that it's facing. And so this book was, it's still an environmental subject matter, but this was history and that was going to be new to me. So this was a little bit different. I had never spent much time, you know, going through archival files and photos and, and so forth. So, uh, so it was a, a bit of a challenge in that way. The approach really was, okay, I need to wade, wade through some files and try to figure out the history of this organization and the history of the, the fight to protect uh, Narragansett Bay. And I did that first by spending three months uh, reading 50 years of Save the Bay newsletters. I literally went into the Save the Bay offices and took over a conference room and read through and took notes from all those um, all those newsletters because you know that that would really give me an idea of what Save the Bay saw as important in the history of its organization, the biggest battles, the people that played a role, and so forth. Uh, and once I got through that and did some online search and read some additional um, books and, and materials uh, that gave me additional history. Then I got back into my comfort zone, which was interviewing people. And, uh, and so then I proceeded to you know, talk to as many people as I could to get their stories about as, as much of the, that history as I could. And so how many interviews did you conduct? And were there any that stood out? Yeah, I, I probably did oh, 15 or 20 different interviews. Some people, like the early um, directors of Save the Bay, I, I interviewed multiple times. Um, but for the most part, you know, it was 15 or 18 interviews, and, um, and every, every single one of them brought something different to the table for me. So it was, you know, it was the early um, Save the Bay executive directors and the current one, Jonathan, as well. Of course, you know, the, the longest-running uh, baykeeper, was was a, a key player. There were current Save the Bay staff members, but also lots of other folks that weren't uh, necessarily directly affiliated with Save the Bay. Because this, while it seems as if it's it's a sort of an institutional history of of Save, Save the Bay, it's really beyond that as well. It's it's it takes place before the organization got started. It involves a lot of other organizations with similar missions although probably smaller in scale. So I interviewed lots of folks from some of these other organizations and uh, you know, they all had a, had a wonderful story to tell and that played an important role. Uh, as far as particularly memorable ones, no, no doubt for me that the, my favorite interview of them all was with, was with Louise Durfee. Now she was the DEM director for the state um, a couple of decades ago. She's a lawyer. She's uh, I believe retired now, but she was, um, very influential in one of the earliest stories that I tell in the book. Uh, and that's about an effort to bring a, uh, or to construct a oil refinery in Tiverton in the late 1960s. And she led the battle to oppose it. And, you know, she basically brought together her neighbors into her kitchen and, and she um, basically gathered them together to gather information and try to put up a fight against this big proposal that most in the town were already supporting. And so she had some wonderful stories to tell about that effort and, and how they uh, turned the town in their favor as opposed to in favor of the, of the oil refinery. And just lots of fun stories about the individual people involved. Although my best Louise Durfee story, however, happened 10, 15 years later. 
because she not only was this early, um, played this early role in fighting this Tiverton oil refinery, and she helped to start Save the Bay and was the president of Save the Bay uh, in some of the early years. But later on, she was the lawyer for the Narragansett Bay Commission, which was at the time, which, which was essentially taking over the Providence uh, wastewater treatment plant, the Fields Point treatment plant. And, um, and that plant hadn't been operating well. The city hadn't been, hadn't been operating it well at all. It was de depositing huge amounts of sewerage into the bay. And Louise was responsible for easing the transition, turning that facility from Providence ownership to the Narragansett Bay Commission. And she said it was nasty battles with Mayor Cianci at the time. And it was just a, a, a terrible experience for her. And her, her biggest job was to uh, negotiate the value of the plant. How much did the Narragansett Bay Commission have to pay the city in order to take ownership of that plant? And of course, this, the mayor wanted huge amounts of money. And after a year of negotiation, she concluded that the plant was worth one dollar. Uh, it was in such bad shape. And of course, the mayor was furious. And I just love that story. So, so Louise was absolutely my favorite interview subject. And she had lots of good character studies and lots of good adventures that she had during the course of her efforts to, to protect uh, Narragansett Bay. Love that part. So how much of what you uncovered in the process was surprising to you? And um, how much did you, you know, of the environmental issues were you familiar with? Or um, what were you discovering for the first time? Yeah, you know, as I said, I, I felt like I was uh, an, an early uh, advocate or supporter um, of Save the Bay, and I followed through their, their history. And so I feel like I knew an awful lot about the organization and what they were doing and the, the various activities they were engaged in. And, um, and so what was particularly notable for me was the early history, was the years before Save the Bay. So it was that battle to protect to, to fight against this, this Tiverton um, oil refinery. And even before that, in 1959, there was another uh, effort to put an oil refinery in Jamestown. And that um, was a, another battle very similar. It was initially supported by most people in the town. There was a small handful of people that fought against it and ultimately changed everybody's opinion and combated the, the, the proposal. And and we know, of course, we don't have an oil refinery there. So those early stories were particularly notable for me, just they were surprising. I wasn't familiar with that early history of you know, these advocates that were fighting to clean up the bay or to protect the bay long before there was any real organized effort to do that. Since that time though, you know, I was familiar with the battles of, of to fight other kinds of energy facilities like the the nuclear plant and the liquefied natural gas facilities that have come and gone in terms of proposals through the years. But what, what I was kind of intrigued with as I was continuing with my, my research was that, this, that there's an awful lot going on on land that affects the Bay as well. Lots of land use issues, you know, lots of efforts to build condos in the 80s and 90s along the edge of the Bay that would have resulted in more runoff into the water. And those land use issues were somewhat surprising to me. That wasn't something I was uh, entirely familiar with during, you know, during those years in the, um, in the history of Save the Bay. And then the whole issue of you know, when you clean up the bay uh, and protect the bay, you've got lots of other water bodies you need to pay attention to as well. You know, we've got lots of 
all these tributaries. The Blackstone River is bringing polluted water was into the bay and, and the Taunton River and other rivers. And so uh, it wasn't just a matter of cleaning up the bay or in order to do that, we had to also pay attention to all these other water bodies, some of which started in Massachusetts that delivered their water into, into the bay as well. So those kind of issues were, were somewhat, un I was somewhat unfamiliar with uh, and played a, a, play a huge role in the latter half of the book and our continuing issues uh, going forward for, for Save the Bay and everybody else who wants to protect the bay. If you were to describe a takeaway, like your biggest takeaway from writing this book and telling these stories, uh, what would that be? Well, I think that, that the takeaway really is how much, um, how many people are involved, how many organizations have been involved through the year. Um, and that, you know, it's not just Save the Bay staff who's responsible for protecting the bay, for cleaning up the bay. It's all of our responsibilities. And, and we're, we've told all these wonderful stories in this book about played a role and that uh, have contributed their efforts to, to a situation where we are today with a much cleaner bay. We still have work to do, but we're in, in a, a much greater place than we were way back when. And so I hope that this book is going to inspire people to not only appreciate the, the history and the work that's gone into uh, protecting the bay and cleaning up the bay in the last 50 years and more, but uh, will motivate themselves or to, to get active and to take a role in continuing this effort. I mean, can you imagine how different uh, Rhode Island would be, how different our bay would be if an oil refinery was built in Jamestown in 1959 and an oil refinery was built in Tiverton in 1969 or 70. And because if those proposals passed, then there would be more infrastructure for the oil industry and there would be liquefied natural gas and more. We would have this major industrial complex of energy facilities, oil stuff. We would be looking like the northern coast of New Jersey, which nobody wants to look at because it's dirty and polluted and ugly. You know, the Bay wouldn't be a place that we would be uh, loving and enjoying and calling the iconic spot of Rhode Island. The state would be different. We as people would probably be different. I probably wouldn't even be here if those facilities were built and everything then followed along with additional uh, infrastructure for those before that oil industry. So, you know, those early battles were so hugely important. We need to uh, remember those and appreciate those battles and those battlers. And, um, and I hope that people will get that message with this book and continue to battle going forward. I know I will. Thank you, Todd. All right, so we're gonna switch now to Jonathan. So Jonathan, uh, why do you think it's important for readers to connect with this particular history at this specific point in time? Yeah, I, I think there are um, two things that jump to mind for me about the, about the book and, and the purpose of the book. One is, uh, and Todd alluded to this in his research, is, is that people, individuals make a difference. Individuals make a huge difference in, it's, um, in speaking up for things they care about and taking action personally with respect to their own life and their own family and um, how they conduct themselves, but also advocating for things that are important to them. And that is kind of a recurring theme of this book that over the many years, individuals took time out of their busy lives and spoke up and they weren't necessarily 
quote unquote environmentalists. In fact, uh, Todd referred back to Louise Durfee, you know, sitting around a kitchen table fighting this oil refinery. None of them actually consider themselves quote unquote environmentalists. They just were people kind of from all walks of life who really cared about the resource, uh, whether it was fishing or sailing or boating or swimming or just taking in the view. So I think that's one really important message that um, this is really a story about individuals who came together to protect something they really cared about. Um, the second thing is that all of us here who are kind of in the trenches on advocacy issues and who are very involved with environmental education worry constantly about complacency. And the fact is that we have made huge progress. We have cleaned up the bay. And a lot of the sort of big, ugly things that riled people up 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago have been solved, have been fixed. However, that's not to say that, first and foremost, that progress can't be unwound. You know, there are, two, there are over 220 million gallons of wastewater treatment plant discharges that enter into Narragansett Bay every day, 220 million gallons of treatment water. And if those 36 wastewater treatment plants are not maintained, then pollution levels will rise again. Um, that's a big issue and it takes vigilance. And climate change, for example, is a huge issue in that it alters some of the baseline conditions that influence the health of the bay. And the question is for all of us, what, what can we do to adapt to protect the progress that we made. So that's another kind of overarching threat that I worry that we are complacent about. And I've heard from people who are new to Rhode Island or newly visiting Narragansett Bay for the first time. And they, they say to me, oh, this place is incredible. It's so beautiful. What a, what a great resource you have here without any knowledge of what it might have been, but for the efforts of these individuals and how really bad it was. I'll just tell you a little anecdote. Um, I went to Brown University. I arrived on campus in 1976, in September of 1976. And I wanted to try out for the crew team. So I went down to Marston Boathouse at Indy Point Park. And I got in a shell with seven other oarsmen and a coxswain. And we pulled out into the Seekonk River. And the first thing I noted was raw sewage floating by. I remember that. But students arriving today at Brown University or URI or Roger Williams or any other institution here don't have any concept necessarily of what it was like. So I do worry about complacency. And I think that's part of the idea of this book is to help people understand that it ain't, it, it, it's never done, that um, it takes vigilance and it takes effort and attention to um, you know, preserve the progress made and in fact, make it better. And we still have pollution issues in various parts of the Bay. We still have beach closures, shellfish bed closures, fish kills, constant pressure of development along the shoreline, which interferes with the public's right to use and enjoy the bay. So all of these things are out there that are putting pressure on the resource. I mean, think about it. We got 2 million people who live around Narragansett Bay, and we have millions who visit, and those people have impacts. We all have impacts, all of us do. And the question is, what are we going to do to protect something we care about? That's a fantastic answer. And I live right by India Point Park. There you go. <laughs> I always see that boathouse and people rowing down. <laughs> Glad they don't have to row through sewage. Thank you for that. So you sort of touched on this already, which is how does the environmental work of today compare to the work that you were doing in the past? 
Well, I, I would say something, and I, I want to just tip my hat to Todd on this topic because he really captured this in the book, that the nature of the environmental challenges and threats over time have, have evolved, have shifted. And they, in one sense, they've shift, shifted because certain big, sort of big uglies, we call them, big ugly sources of pollution or development proposals have largely been fixed or gone by the wayside. He, Todd mentioned that sort of the origins of the organization were really built on fighting energy infrastructure projects. And he's absolutely right. Narragansett Bay would look like Northern New Jersey, absolutely would have, but for people speaking up. So, but once, as those sort of big fights gradually diminished over time, the tension shift to water pollution and wastewater being the prime source of pollution uh, compounded by industrial pollution. So those problems have largely been attended to through the passage of the Clean Water Act, advocacy of groups like Save the Bay, investments of hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure. Then you get to the more complicated problems, uh, sort of in today's world, a lot of the pollution that runs into the bay washes off of our city streets or washes off of lawns and golf courses in the form of, of fertilizer that pollutes the bay. How do you deal with that? And there's no big ugly pipe that you can seal off or run through a treatment plant. Now you have, you know, literally thousands and thousands of acres of land, of landscape that all, all over which washes rainwater and carries pollutants into the bay. So the problem there is incredibly complex. Another related one would be plastics. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, there were you didn't you never bought a beverage in a plastic bottle. It was glass. Today, everything is plastic, and plastic doesn't biodegrade. It doesn't go away. So if things end up in the bay, they stay in the bay, and we're seeing an accumulation over time of a new form of pollutant that is incredibly difficult to get rid of once it's in the environment, in the ecosystem. So that's a huge problem because our whole society is built around cheap, accessible, lightweight packaging like plastics. So. Those are just a couple of examples that um, you know we have to be diligent. We have to really depend on the best available research. We have to drive our thinking in creative ways to deal with these much more complicated problems. Uh, I think when people can see kind of a big ugly pipe, they get riled up and oh my god, that's terrible. We can do something about it. But, but things are more subtle now, and that is makes it very challenging for. For anyone who cares about protecting the bay, for advocates like us, for environmental managers, and so forth, so it's a, in a way, the complexity of the problems and the, um, the pervasiveness requires a whole different level of capacity, a whole different concept of persistence. You know, you've got to persevere on these issues over many, many years to actually make measurable change, and that's what we're about: is persistence relying on the best available science and galvanizing, mobilizing people to take action. Back a little bit to the book. Uh, what kind of experience do you hope that readers will have while they are reading Saving Narragansett Bay? I mean, I, I'd be interested in Todd's answer to this too. My, my hope is that they're surprised, uh, that the things that they read about, that they, they go, wow, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't realize that there were three liquefied natural gas terminal proposals for Narragansett Bay, that there were two nuclear power plants proposed to be constructed on Narragansett Bay. I want people to go, wow, I didn't realize that. Or 
that there are 220 million gallons of wastewater treatment plant discharge that flush into the bay every every day of the year. I didn't know that. Uh, and I also hope people are inspired. I hope people go, wow, you know, that's really cool. I mean, that people who weren't quote unquote environmentalists, who just cared about something, spoke up and against huge odds. Todd touches on this in the book in the, the context of the Tiverton refinery. That, that project had the support of the governor, the legislature, the town. Everybody wanted it except for a handful of neighbors who really understood how it would radically and permanently alter the nature of their community. And that key insight ultimately motivated people to speak up. So I hope they're surprised. I hope they're intrigued, inspired. And uh, Todd, would you like to share what you're hoping people will experience when they read the book? Well, I, I guess I would follow up on, on Jonathan's comment and, and be inspired and be motivated. You know, this is sort of an educational book, although I certainly wouldn't qualify that as something that's, you know, that you're going to be reading in your, in your classroom necessarily, but it is certainly something you're going to learn a great deal from. Uh, whether you're surprised or not, I don't, I'm not sure, but certainly you're going you're gonna to learn an awful lot that you don't know. And, um, and for, for me, you know, as it, because this is sort of a coffee table book with wonderful photographs all, all the way through it, uh, and those kind of books, uh, sometimes people will flip through the pages and just look at the pictures, uh, and they will absolutely be impressed with these wonderful photographs, modern day photos, historic photos, photos that are side by side comparisons of what the place looked like you know, 50 years ago and what they look like today. Um, so, so that uh, experience alone will be uh, uh, fun and enjoyable, um, but certainly I hope they will indeed read it as well. Uh, and because if they do, they will no doubt learn something and uh, and be motivated um, about um, uh, about getting uh, involved and appreciating the folks who have done the work before them. That leads really nicely into the next question, which is for Jonathan. Do you have any tips for our listeners or readers who would like to get involved today with Save the Bay? Sure. I mean, the first thing I'd say is there are lots of ways you can get involved and support uh, the work of Save the Bay, either indirectly or directly. The first thing I would say is to get involved with us is easy. Go to our website, which is www.savebay.org. And on the website, it's very easy to navigate around to, to um, understand where you can volunteer, how to become a member, how to participate in some of our events, and participate in our educational programs. We actually have now in the COVID era produced a whole series of uh, educational programs entitled Breakfast by the Bay, which are available on our YouTube channel. And uh, if you go to Save the Bay RI, which is our YouTube channel, you'll see all the Breakfast by the Bay programs archived there. That's another way you can experience what our educators have to offer, you engage your kids. So, you know, connecting with the organization <clears throat> is, uh, would be a great step. But there are things you can also do in your own personal life. Uh, we have published, for example, a little booklet called Bay Friendly Living. And Bay Friendly Living is sort of a guide to, for families as they live their lives about things that they can do, you can do in your own personal life to reduce your imp impact, to improve your footprint, as it were, as it relates to protecting the natural world that we, we love. And um, that guide is available on our website. It's also available in print. And 
that's got a lot of useful tips that you can pursue. You know, we have volunteer activities. Again, a lot of this has been disrupted by COVID. And when COVID's behind us, we'll be back full steam ahead. There are lots of ways you can get involved. I would also say, and Todd does a great job of uh, identifying many of these organizations around Narragansett Bay, there are lots of local watershed groups, uh, river groups, advocacy groups that are working on very local issues. And that's helpful too, whether it's Save Bristol Harbor or the Wunisquatucket River Council or the Narrow River Preservation Association. There are lots of local groups that are doing great work at, in their own local geography that um, people can get involved with and help out. And it all contributes to uh, protecting this place. So there are just tons of ways. And um, we, we count on it. You know, we, we are a membership-based organization. We are a grassroots organization. We derive almost all of our income from local people who are involved with us in one fashion or another. And that's important to us that we live and die by that. That's really important. So um, the short answer is there are tons of ways to get involved and um, please do so. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that you have been here. Thank you again for joining us and for sharing about this with uh, Rhode Island Library listeners. Well, thanks again for your interest. I really appreciate it. I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to put this together. And Todd, thank you for your time. I appreciate it too. Yeah, glad, glad to be here. Thanks to all of you for, uh, for inviting me and for getting this together. To learn more about Save the Bay, become a member, or purchase a copy of the book, Saving Narragansett Bay, How People, Passion, and Perseverance Made All the Difference, visit www.savebay.org or follow the links in our show notes. You can also find a copy of the book on the shelves of many of Rhode Island's local public libraries. Thank you again to Jonathan Stone and Todd McLeish for talking with me. And a special thanks to Katie Dorches, Director of Communications and Marketing at Save the Bay, for helping libraries get copies of the book and arranging this interview. The music you heard in today's episode is Waves by Mind's Eye. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is made possible by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities.